Thanks, Roy and Daryl. <laughs> Hello, church. Good afternoon. It's good to see you all. Last week, I was sharing about the point of being a Christian. Does anyone remember? What's the point of Christianity? Friendship with God, I think I heard uh, someone say. Last week, there are many things about Christianity, but last week I shared that the point of Christianity is friendship with God. In other words, you can know a lot of theology, you can recite all your beliefs, and you can back them up with Bible verses, but if you do not have a personal relationship with God, then what is it all for? I share that friendship with God develops in an honest and consistent communication with God that we call prayer, talking to God about what's really going on in our hearts and minds. And I invited you to try it every day for 10 days. And you have, if you haven't tried it yet, I want to remind you to try um, to set your alarm for a certain time every day for the next 10 days to have that personal prayer time with God. And if you're wondering, well, what do I talk to God about? Hold that thought because I will come back to that later. But today I want to explore, I guess this is, you know, last week I talked about the point of Christianity. Today I want to talk about the point of church. Why does church exist? What's its purpose? And how do we know if the church is achieving its purpose? And if it isn't, then what needs to change? So let's first define what church is. The Greek word that's translated into church, the first time we see it in the New Testament, is when Jesus is actually talking to his disciples. And he uses the word ecclesia, which was a word that was used in ancient Greece to talk about an assembly of citizens that were summoned together to discuss an agenda. So church is not a place. Church is not a location or a building. And church is not a worship service, but it's a community. It's a gathering of people to talk about something specific. So what is it that they gather to talk about? So let's go to that first time in the Bible where Jesus mentions the word church. He's talking to disciples and he's asking them the question, who do people say that I am? And the, some of his disciples reply in Matthew chapter 16, verses 14 and 15. Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then Jesus turns to them and asks, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answers, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. In other words, Jesus sets the foundation for the church by saying it is established on answering and exploring that question, who is Jesus? Who do you say that I am? Who do others say that I am? Who is Jesus? So if the point of Christianity, can you all hear me? I feel like the microphone, okay. If the point of Christianity is friendship with Jesus, then the church is a community, thank you, then the church is a community of people who are growing in their friendships with Jesus. Some may just be getting to know him for the first time. Others may have been friends with him for a while, but have not yet gotten to that deeper, intimate level of friendship. And still others may have been friends with Jesus for many years, and as all relationships, there are ups and downs and issues to work through. But the church works when we are committed to coming together to talk about Jesus. 
who he is to us, who he is to the world. And as each person shares his or her story of their personal relationship with Jesus, together we form a community that reflects fuller, clearer, better picture of Jesus to the world. So how do we do this in an effective way? Well, how did Jesus do it? How did Jesus present a clear picture of God to the world? And we go to John chapter 1 to read the narrative. And it says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14. And the Word became flesh and made his dwelling with us, among us. And we have seen his glory. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. But the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. In other words, God was an idea. He was word. He was logos. He was a concept until Jesus came in the flesh so that we could see and touch and experience and relate to and understand who God truly is. Eugene Peterson's message translation of the Bible says it this way. I really like how it says the same passage we just read. It says, he translates it as, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory with our own eyes, the one-of-a-kind glory, like father, like son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. We got the basics from Moses, and then this exuberant giving and receiving, this endless knowing and understanding, all this came through Jesus the Messiah. No one has ever seen God, not so much as a glimpse, this one-of-a-kind God expression who exists at the very heart of the Father has made him plain as day. I like that, don't you? That Jesus Christ became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. That he became one of us. That he came to relate to us human beings. Pouring himself into a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. A humble, small baby, born to a humble, poor family who had no place to stay in but a barn. And as he grew into a man, Jesus became a humble, poor, itinerant preacher who never had a permanent home. And I'm emphasizing, emphasizing this because you see throughout the life of Jesus that he wasn't uh, creating huge spaces. He wasn't about creating uh, a permanent structure. He was about church being a gathering of people who wanted to learn about God. Matthew chapter 8, verse 20, Jesus said, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. When you look at the life and ministry of Jesus, he didn't need a permanent building to share this picture of God. He didn't need a music team to travel with him from place to place, and he didn't take up offerings. You see Jesus over and over again going to the people. Traveling from town to town. Ministering to people where they were. Matthew chapter 8 verse... Uh, sorry, let me go back to... Math, oh, I'm missing a verse there. Matthew chapter um, 4 verse 23. It says, Jesus went through Galilee teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. He went where the people were. When they were gathered together in the synagogues, he went there and he taught. 
If they were in the marketplace, he went there and he healed. If they were um, in the mountaintops, he went there and preached. And of course, people came where Jesus to where Jesus was as well. People brought their friends. People brought their loved ones. People came to hear him. But the point is that Jesus also went to where the people were. Jesus affirmed the dignity and the value of people that society and religious groups deemed unfit and untouchable. He told stories explaining the values of the kingdom of God. He prayed for people. He fed the hungry. He made the blind see and the lame walk. He comforted those who wept. And he freed people from their chains. And ultimately, he died for his enemies. And then he told those who wanted to follow him, who witnessed Jesus do all these things. He said, you, if you want to be my follower, you want to be my disciple, you must also carry your cross and come and follow. And Jesus taught them to do exactly what he did. We find out in Luke chapter 10, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. And he told them, the harvest is plentiful, plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Did you catch that? The disciples... The 72, we often think about Jesus having the 12, but here we find out that Jesus had 72 disciples who went out doing the very things that Jesus was doing. Going from place to place, meeting with people, healing the sick, proclaiming the good news. This is a quote that is very dear to my heart. This is my ministry philosophy. This is a quote by a woman named Ellen White, and in the book Minister of Healing she wrote, Christ's method alone will give true success in reaching the people. The Savior mingled with men as one who desired their good. He showed his sympathy for them, ministered to their needs, and won their confidence. Then he bade them follow. You see, this is the mission of the church. To talk about Jesus together, right? We all come together, each with our own personal relationship with Jesus, and we come together and we share our stories. We talk about who he is to us. And then in smaller groups, we go out and, and enter into the lives of the people in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our schools. And we, together as a group, minister to the needs of those people in our lives. We promote their well-being and their healing. And when they wonder, well, what's motivating you? What makes you do this? That's when we tell them the story of Jesus. This is a quote by Pastor Sean Brace, I'll talk about him in a moment, where he says, what would happen if you recognize that your primary calling in life was to serve as a chaplain of sorts for your neighborhood or workplace or classroom, to be present as the embodied represent representative of God's kingdom, not to bombard each house or co-worker with religious missiles engaging in drive-by evangelism. The world doesn't need more people who think they have all the answers, but who don't have the grace or humility. What the world needs is people who live as the ears of Christ and the hands of the Spirit, listening for the hidden longings of each heart and mediating love to those who need it. I bet you discover your life was never more fulfilling and exciting. And I bet you discovered that the neighborhood exactly where the Spirit has already been conducting church all along. 
This is a quote from a book that I have read three times now because it is that good. It's a book called The Table I Long For, and it's written by Pastor Sean Brace, who's a pastor in a part of the U.S. that is even more secular than Melbourne. I've compared the statistics to see if this is really true because that's what someone had claimed, and I went and looked it up. And uh, in the city of Melbourne, we have less than 24% who are Christian. And we have nearly 50% report themselves as having no religion. In Bangor, Maine, which is where Pastor Sean Brace is from, less than 23% are Christian and 76% report as having no religion. So it is true that he's from a place that is even more secular than Melbourne. And Sean experiences, you know, passing for many, many, many years. And after a while, he has this epiphany where one day he has some people over to his house on Friday uh, evening and, and they're singing together, they're praying together, they're talking and they're, and they're having Bible study together. And he sits there and he wonders, why does church have to be more than this? And he starts refocusing and going back to the Bible and studying it. And he, he comes on a journey that changes how he views church. And he then leads his church into a, a paradigm shift in thinking. And the book basically is, um, the story of their journey together, himself, his family, and his church, and how they do church now. And the, church, the book is called The Table I Long For because he imagines a church that is based around that idea of, of Jesus having a table where people would come and eat together. And, um, and I really uh, encourage you to read it. If you, if you would like a copy of the book, we will get you one. Here's some highlights uh, from the book that I want to share with you. He writes, many have observed that churches do church one of two ways. The first way is what some have called the attractional approach. When a church is attractional, its life revolves around the program it puts on in a building each week. We then try to attract people to the events we hold in our building with the hope that these people will commit to coming to the event again next week. Churches have to compete with each other to be the most appealing and attractive church on the block. And they're also extractional extracted from their previous existence and thrust into a parallel society that rarely intersects with the outside world in any meaningful way. So he says there's two ways of doing church or being church. One is this church where you're hoping people will come to something once a week in a building and you're hoping that they'll come once a week and that's um, you try to make it as, as attractive and as interesting or as, um, you know, engaging as possible so that people will want to come. So that's one way of doing church. And then he says there's a second way. He says there's a second way of, of doing church, or more accurately, the second way of being church, and he calls this the missional way. He says church in this understanding is not a what, a where, or a when. It is a who. God's people sent out into the world to participate in God's mission in everyday life. The church is not concerned with putting on good programs and exciting events and then inviting people to come come to us to consume them. Instead, the church goes out into the world, speaking to bring the healing ministry of Christ to a world that desperately needs it. The church doesn't have a mission. The mission has a church with all of the church life revolving around and participating in that mission. In other words, the point of church is not the gathering of us together. That is important, trust me. But that's not the end goal. The point of church is the sending out into the week 
where we bring the healing ministry of Jesus to our workplace, to our homes, to our neighborhoods, to our families. The gathering together is where we equip, encourage, and edify one another so that we can better do that in the field week in and week out. Using a rare sports analogy, a bear from me, that is. Gathering together is the huddle where you discuss the play. You cheer each other on, right? You do a little hurrah and you, and you are encouraging each other to go out and execute the game plan. It's the actual game that matters, right? What's the point if you huddle and then that's it? But the huddle is the church where you come together as a community and you encourage each other to, to endure in God, to, to keep the faith, and you pray for each other and you brainstorm the best strategy, and then you break the huddle with a cheer and you go out into the week, into your work, into your school, into your homes, into your neighborhoods, and you execute the game. And then you come back together and you talk about what needs to be tweaked, what can be better, who can assist. And it involves that team play. Sure, superstars get the points on the board all by themselves, but to really win, to have a really winning team, you need those who pass, those who defend, those can make, who can you know kick the final goal in. You need everyone with their unique gifts and talents and resources so that together, collectively, we get to minister to our community. That's why Jesus designed the church, to be a community. That's why you can't do Christianity all alone. Sean continues, Our missional witness will only be effective to the degree that we pursue it together in community. Your neighbor or coworker may be impressed with your selfless love. But if you're just an isolated individual, they could chalk it up to your niceness. Your, they could chalk up your niceness to any number of things. Perhaps you are just naturally kind or you're naturally just friendly. But if they intersected with a whole group of selfless, though obviously imperfect people, now that is attention. If you, by your own self, can show selfless love to your coworkers and to your neighbors and to your friends, they're just going to think, wow, Peter is such a nice guy. And he is. But if they met Peter and Amelia and Natalia and Kay and Estina, who are all pouring out their lives on behalf of others, that's when people begin to scratch their heads and say, what's going on here? Especially if they are a group of people who naturally wouldn't connect. If they're a group of people with different political and socioeconomic backgrounds. And, and they, yet they come together and they're showing and sharing the same spirit. People begin to wonder, what is going on? When Jesus gathered his first church, not only did the 12, but the 72 and, and beyond, can you imagine the amount of conflicts they had? Can you imagine the different personalities that butted heads? We hear a little bit of that in the Bible stories, but I'm sure there's a lot more that the Bible doesn't say about what was happening behind the scenes, between interpersonal relationships, between fractions, between you know those from Bethsaida and those from you know Nazareth and those from other parts of... of um, Israel, arguing about who was the best, looking down upon each other. It wasn't easy, and they didn't always get along, but Jesus gathered this group together because he knew that as their understanding of Jesus grew, and as their friendship with Jesus grew, and as they spent more time together, something special would happen. In fact, he prayed for it. 
in John chapter 17, verses 20 to 23, he, he prays for his disciples. He prays for his followers. And then he goes on to say, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them, and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me, and have loved them, even as you have loved me. The world will know that God is love when we come together to share the story of Jesus, when we can love each other despite our differences, when we can lay down our pride, our ego, where we are judging one another, and instead recognize Jesus and God's image in each person, then we can work together to serve those outside the church. Perhaps this is where we have gotten it so wrong over the millenniums that the Christian church has existed. Somewhere along the way, we have lost Jesus' example and his exhortation to be a missional community. Quoting Ellen White again, she says, The Savior's words, you are the light of the world, point to the fact that he has committed to his followers a worldwide mission. In the days of Christ, selfishness and pride and prejudice had built strong and high the wall of partition between the appointed guardians of the sacred oracles and every other nation of the globe. But the Savior had come to change all this. Christ tears away the wall of partition, the self-love, the dividing prejudice of nationality, and teaches a love for all the human family. He lifts men from the narrow circle that their selfishness prescribes. He abolishes all territorial lines and artificial distinctions of society. He makes no difference between neighbors and strangers, friends and enemies. He teaches us to look upon every needy soul as our neighbor and the world as our you see, it's interesting how she says in Jesus' time there were people with high prejudice. I don't know about you, but I look around us the world today and there is so much pride and prejudice. We have built huge walls separating ourselves from other people. Based on so many different factors, based on so many different criteria. You know, I've been a pastor for 18 years. And do you know what is the biggest block of people coming to accept Jesus? It's this idea that God loves them. And they can't accept this idea. Because they see so much suffering in the world. Suffering that's been inflicted, established, perpetrated, and ignored by Christians for millennia. How can they believe in a God of love? When the followers of God are not loving. It's inconceivable. On the other hand, do you know who I have found to be the most receptive to God? It's people who have been loved well by at least one Christian. They met one Christian who loved them unconditionally, who loved them with grace. And those are the individuals who are most open to learning about. The greatest witness of the church is not what we say. It's who we are. Not when we're here together, but when we're out interacting with our coworkers.
when we're with our family, when we're in our neighborhood. It's not enough for us, the church, to talk about God's love. We have to live it out. We can't gather together and sing about God's love and then judge one another. We can't gather together to talk about God's love and then go home and not love. We come together to learn God's love, not just in theory, but in practice. And that's why I think of the church as a laboratory of love. This is where we test it out. This is where we work it out, right? Because here we are, a bunch of people who are very different. And if we can figure out how to love each other here, we can figure out how to love those outside. Matthew chapter 18, Jesus said, Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? And Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but seventy times. Did you catch that Peter is asking, not how many times should I forgive that Roman soldier? That's not what he's asking. He's asking, how many times do I have to forgive my brother or my sister? Like I said, 12 disciples, 72 disciples, they needed to forgive each other a lot. <laughs> Especially for Simon Peter, who had a hot and fiery temper, who cared very strongly about many issues. He had to learn to forgive his brother and his sister. And Jesus is letting him know that when two or three people, his people, come together, able to love each other, able to forgive each other, able to agree together, there he is. That's where the miracle is. When we can come together despite our differences and work together to serve our community, to break down systematic injustice, to comfort the sick and the hurting, to share the self-sacrificing love of Jesus, that's church. In 165 A.D., at the height of Roman power throughout the Mediterranean world, when Marcus Aurelius Antoninus was the emperor, the first of three epidemics broke out. These epidemics were so awful that the Roman historian Dio Cassius estimated that somewhere between two to 5,000 people died per day in the city of Rome. It's been suggested that a quarter to a third of the entire population of the Roman Empire died in those few centuries because of these series of epidemics. An estimated 60 to 7 million people. The emperor himself died from the epidemic. And the historians talk about how because people were so afraid of, of this sickness, that when someone got sick, even if it was a beloved child, they would throw the sick person out into the street. And those who could afford to would flee. And Galen, who was a very famous physician, very well-known classicist uh, physician, doctor at this time, he was one of those who fled to the country because he could afford to. Meanwhile, the sick were left in the streets to die on top of the corpses that existed already piled there. But there was a small minority group, a minority group that had been persecuted, a minor, minority group that had been thrown to the lions, 
a minority group that had been imprisoned. And they were called Christians because they always talked about Jesus Christ. And this minority group went out into the streets to bring food and water to those who had been abandoned there, to comfort the dying, to, to nurse those who are sick. And it's interesting when you look at the statistics of how many Christians there were in the first century. And then you look at how many Christians there were by the third century. And is it any coincidence that this group that had been the minority gained so much momentum that, that by the fourth century, Christianity becomes the official religion of the Roman Empire? But here's a cautionary tale for all of us. By the fifth century, a group of Christians who were designated as the Parabolani, because that's what they called these risk-takers, these people who were willing to put their lives at risk to go out into the field as paramedics, these volunteer Christians, they went from taking care of the sick to becoming the henchmen of Cyril, the Archbishop of Alexandria. And this special group who used to be the nurses, under his tyrannical orders, they became his bodyguard slash um, goon, really, who went out murdering opposing Christian groups, destroyed pagan temples, libraries, and art, attacked Jewish quarters, and murdered Hypatia, a female professor of mathematics and philosophy. And for another thousand years, the Christian church did horrible things in the name of God. And they went from risking their lives to help others to taking lives as violent perpetrators. Why? Because they lost sight of the point of the church. That the church is the body of Christ, made flesh and blood in you and I, sent to extend the healing ministry of Jesus as wounded healers, imperfect as we are, to go out and take risks in sharing God's love. And we have lost that purpose. And the picture of the body of Christ laying down its life so that others can live. So how do we know if we're achieving our purpose as a church? It's not by the number of attendees to our church service. It's not by the number of people in Bible studies. And all these things are important and all these we like. Because that's where the equipping and the empowering and the encouraging can happen. But the true measure of our purpose is by how many people we are investing our lives into during the week. How many of our neighbors, our coworkers, our family members and friends are we blessing with the healing ministry of Jesus? Bringing comfort to those who are sick or lonely, hurt or discouraged. Affirming those who have been judged and rejected, empowering those who have been systematically devalued. And when we come together, we gather to help each other to help others because caretakers need caring, right? We know this. And so we gather together to encourage each other, to pray for each other, to minister to each other so that when we go out there during the week to invest and pour our lives out for others, we know that there are people who have our backs. We know that there are people who will help us. We know that we have a people who are collectively sharing in the work. That together we are the church, the holy dwelling of God, where his love and his spirit live out through us. 
We are his hands and feet to serve, and we are his mouthpiece to speak truth and mercy, and we are his his body broken for others. In a book called Bringing Heaven to Earth, Josh Ross and Jonathan Stormont write, Church isn't the only place to meet God, but at her best, church is where we learn how to meet God everywhere else. Church is where we learn how to lay down our lives for the common good and the glory of God. So how do we participate in this kind of church? Well, first we must pray. I said in the beginning that I would come back to this idea of prayer. That if you're ever wondering, well, what do I pray for? What do I pray about? Pray for God to open our eyes to see the needs of others that God has placed in our lives. Ask God to prompt and nudge you towards just one person that you can invest your life into. One person who is not a Christian that you can spend time with and be spent for. One person in your workplace, your school, one of your friends, one of your neighbors. Pray for that one person. Once God has revealed that person to you. And then, ask one or two people in the church to pray with you for this person. And you can pray for the people that, that they want to reach as well. You pray, come together and you pray together. And as you spend time with that person that God has nudged you towards, you listen to their stories, you listen to their lives, you listen to their needs. And sometimes just being there for them consistently is the healing that they need. And perhaps... As opportunity arises, you can introduce your church to your friends. And I don't mean just inviting them to church. Well, if they are open to that, that's great. But I'm talking about inviting your church to to that person. For example, if the person needs to move, right? How many times have I seen in the past Galen willing to lend out his ute, Roy drives, Kay uses his muscles, right? People come together to help. I cannot tell you how many times <laughs> we have helped people move, right? The church coming together. Or if one of your friends needs help with something, their garden needs something. I know Peter has a great hand, green thumb, right? And there are others who can come together and say, we will come and help meet your friend's need. Or perhaps if it's your birthday, Rather than waiting for a church social and hoping your friend might come to that, what about you having a social and inviting some of the church people to you to mingle and meet those people in your lives that you want to impact in a positive way? We're not too embarrassing, right? We have something to offer collectively to the community in our joint selfless love for others. I have seen this church do amazing things for each other and for those outside the circle. I want to see more. I want to empower us to be a true missional community that exists to help others experience the unconditional love of God in flesh and blood through us, through you and I, the living sanctuaries of God. I want us to gather together in order to pray and brainstorm how we can support each other and the people in our lives experience the unconditional love of God. I want to gather to share stories of how you see Jesus in your life, right? To answer that question, 
Who is Jesus to you? To answer that question, who is Jesus to other people? And how can we change that picture of God that they have? So that it becomes clearer and fuller revelation of, of truly who he is. Rather than me preaching or Roy preaching up here, I want to hear your stories. I want to hear the stories of the people you impact. Come and say, this is how God has impacted me. This is who Jesus is to me. In the flesh. That's the church that I long for. That's the church that I pray for. What about you? What kind of church is in the heart of God for us here in Melbourne in 2023? Who are the people who are not yet here with us that God has placed in your life, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your friendship circle, in your family, that God sees as very much part of his church and is waiting for us to see that as well. It is my prayer that as we change our paradigm of what church is, that we will recognize how God actually wants to use us and how God actually wants to bless us as a church community. I want to invite Roy to come back as we sing our final song. Lord, make me a sanctuary. And sanctuary is just a fancy word that means the dwelling place of God. And I believe, as the Bible has said, that God wants to dwell in each one of us. And he wants to dwell among us. And the question is, do we want him to use us as his channels of love? Do we want to be church? So let's sing.